Good morning. It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to church this morning to our worship service. My name is Jenny, and it's just so lovely to see all of you here. And we welcome as well those who are joining in from home. I'm just very conscious that as we came through the doors today or as we tuned in on our computers that we're coming from a whole host of experiences throughout the week. Some of them may be very good and some of them may be quite difficult. And so whatever state you're coming here to worship in, I just invite you now really to take a deep breath. Um, I'm feeling quite nervous at the moment as this is my, my first time leading worship, but I invite you with me to take a deep breath and just settle in um, and rest in the presence of the Lord this morning. Um, We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that this um, service will be a blessing to you. Um, Whether you're at home or in person in church, we believe that the Lord is with us, his presence is with us, and we also believe that he has things to teach us, he has encouragements for us, and he has blessings for us for our time um, that we meet with him today. So let's prepare our hearts to meet with God this morning with the words of Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Would you join us in singing praise to the Lord the Almighty? We're going to pray together now, and there'll be a moment of quiet for your own personal reflection and silent prayer shortly. I invite you to share with God the things that are on your heart in the quietness of that moment. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise and adore you because you are worthy of praise and adoration. You are the Almighty, the King of all creation, the Lord of life, the holder of all power. And yet in your might and your omnipotence and your perfect holiness, you choose to look on us with love and to deal with us mercifully and graciously. Lord, when we think about your perfect righteousness and goodness, none of us can stand. We know our own faithlessness. We know our own failings and shortcomings daily. God, each of us take a moment now to quietly confess the ways that our sin hurts those around us and ourselves and grieves you. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Create in each of us a clean heart and a right spirit. We cannot fix ourselves, and we ask that your spirit would work in each of us every day to show us our sin, to teach us how to repent, and to transform us more into your likeness. Father, thank you for your patient love for each of us and your faithful instruction in our lives. Thank you that your love and forgiveness are not based on worth or merit, but on your own character. Thank you for being wholly good and perfectly loving in all your ways. We thank you and we pray all these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's continue our worship by singing, Speak, O Lord. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Acts 4, verses 1 to 31. And just want to... 
take a moment and thank the Lord that we are in a place right now where we can freely open up his word without any fear. And um, we do that with those in mind who are in places where it's not possible um, to do that free from fear. So Acts 4, 1 to 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Any further threat, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculous, miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When he heard this, they raised their voice. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to prayer, to, in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Monty, we look forward to hearing what God's put on your heart to share with us.
Thank you so much, Jenny, uh, for that. And thank you for your prayers uh, as a congregation for Gwen and I as we traveled through Latvia and Estonia this week, meeting with the leaders of the student movements there. It was a very encouraging trip for us to see such vision and passion. And it was encouraging for them, I believe, to spend a longer period of time talking through ways forward and to uh, make plans for the next stage of ministry after a period when things have been particularly difficult, especially in Estonia. Uh, it wasn't a holiday, but we did see some very nice things. Uh, but one of the relaxing things I did get to do in between meetings and to make the long journey home yesterday um, a, little bit, uh, a little bit more enjoyable uh, when I wasn't preparing my sermon uh, was to read uh, the latest book by spy writer and former journalist Gerald Seymour. He made his name with the book and uh, became a film, a Harry's Game, set in Belfast in the 1970s, that famous soundtrack uh, by Moya Brennan of Clannad. Uh, his latest book, Beyond Recall, is about the search for a Russian war criminal guilty of atrocities in Syria. Uh, this criminal is spotted by a young woman who had been tending her family goats and had seen her village wiped out as she watched on from the hillside. The city, uh, the, the uh, regime uh, forces had executed some young men in the village, but then killed everyone else so that there would be no witnesses. Later in the book, when she was asked how she could sit and watch that happen, she said there needed to be a witness. There needed to be a witness. There needed to be the chance of justice. The story of the birth of the Christian church is the story of an attempt to wipe out a community, to leave no witnesses. The early Christians, on the other hand, were probably the worst undercover agents in the history of the world. Although, like all of us Christians since, they essentially live behind enemy lines in the world, they were determined in the interests of justice to be noticed, to be witnesses, to be witnesses to what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. But the difference here is that instead of raw justice, they have a message of hope, of grace, of forgiveness. They had one and only one sure message of salvation, even for those who had carried out the atrocity of crucifying Jesus. You see, when God is on the ground, people notice. Have you ever seen how sometimes those who are not believers, or even those who are actively hostile to the Christian faith, can understand more of the truth than those who are disciples? Uh, the birth of a baby in Bethlehem was so insignificant to most that it didn't even warrant a proper maternity ward. But the psychopath Herod recognized that this baby was dangerous. As Jesus wandered the countryside, often ignored and doubted by many in his own town and family who thought he was mad, the demons recognized him and called out and trembled. While his disciples fled after the crucifixion, devastated and without any hope, the religious authorities remembered words about resurrection and they paid off the soldiers to deny that anything had happened. 
And now here, this ragtag bunch of uneducated men were astounding the people with their teaching. And these same hostile religious authorities had no difficulty making the connection that the transformation in these disciples that they had put the frighteners on, uh, the power, the revival in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem, was all down to the fact that they had been with Jesus. People were noticing. 5,000 actually in verse 3, praising God in verse 21, making enough of an impression that the authorities dare not punish them. How often have you heard someone say, I have a very private faith? It's attractive, isn't it? To have a faith that's just between you and God, nobody else's business, nothing too public, nothing too in your face that might offend somebody. Keep it private. A faith like that will never attract attention of those who might make life difficult for you. Yes, it's attractive. The trouble is it's not biblical. Faith is personal, absolutely, but it is never private. There was nothing private about Jesus' ministry. There was nothing private about the Holy Spirit's ministry through the apostles. People noticed. They couldn't help it. With powerful words and powerful deeds, Peter preached and healed and demonstrated that God had come on the ground to His people in Jesus Christ. The authorities couldn't put an end to Jesus two months previously, and they were now powerless to put an end to Him by punishing the apostles. But of course, this raises a question, doesn't it? Why would they want to? Well, this leads us to the second thing that we see in this chapter. When God is on the ground, don't expect a rational response. I wonder if you noticed something as we read the passage. Maybe it's a little too familiar to us. Maybe we're used to the stories about how Christians will face opposition. But somebody reading this for the first time would surely be scratching their heads. Any self-respecting lawyer or philosopher would be thinking, what, am I missing something here? What caused this fear, this furore, this special meeting of the ruling council? What was this dangerous new movement? Why were these men being dragged into the dock? For an act of kindness. While a guy in his 40s could suddenly walk again, while a beggar had been restored to health and dignity, while 5,000 people were celebrating, these guys were upset. And it's okay, lawyer. It's okay, philosopher. You haven't missed anything because there wasn't a reasoned argument amongst them. The whole way through this passage, we see fear, even paranoia, jealousies, political maneuverings. It wasn't a rational response. Look at all they could come up with. Verse 2, they were preaching the resurrection, <laughs> that Jesus Christ was alive, uh, that this was proof that there was hope, hope for justice, hope that this existence isn't all that there is, that there will be a time when our mortal bodies and our pains and decay will all be no more and will be resurrected with new bodies and there will be no more crying and pain. And that was bad news for some people. Verse 9, they healed a cripple. 
They showed kindness and compassion, and this was bad news. Verse 14, the authorities knew they were without arguments. They were afraid of the people, verse 21. And yet, verse 17, they still wanted to stop them. We could almost sum up the reasoning of the Sanhedrin if they'd been asked, what's the big problem? You could almost sum it up in Father Ted's classic phrase, down with this sort of thing. Because, you see, it has very little to do with reasoned arguments about truth or about reality. And it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus attacks and threatens our vested interests. Think about it. What, provo what provokes racist or homophobic or sectarian or sexist behavior or attacks? Nothing rational, but everything to do with an emotional knee-jerk reaction to somehow feeling threatened by other people. As you know, in my work with students, we do a lot of apologetics, answering the big questions and objections that folks raise about the Christian faith. We did a few of those during lockdown on the YouTube channel for our teenagers. It's important, but it also has its limitations. It's not the magic bullet that will make everybody believe. Answering those big questions through reasoning and debate is excellent, but it's excellent largely for two groups of people. It's important and effective, first of all, for those who are genuinely seeking, who want to believe, but there's maybe one or two issues that bother them that they need to be convinced that they're not going to commit intellectual suicide when they become Christians. And it's also important for Christians, for us, so that we can have confidence that what we know in our hearts can also make sense in our heads. It can hold water against the arguments of atheists and others. However, for a lot of people, it's not effective because they have no intention at the moment of believing. And if you say to them, listen, if I answer this question to your satisfaction, will you be one step closer to becoming a Christian? And they will say no because I've got a few other favorites up my sleeve that I just like to argue about with Christians. Like the Sanhedrin in this passage, their objections are not intellectual but emotional. The demands of the Jesus of the New Testament are just too much. Jesus threatens their autonomy. He threatens their personal agenda. You see, if what is most important to us, most precious to us, is a political agenda, then the gospel will challenge that, and we'll start to be uncomfortable with or, or even hate those who preach this gospel. If what is most precious to us is our religious tradition or denominational ethos, then the gospel will challenge that, and we will despise those who speak into that. If you don't believe me, spend 10 minutes on social media. Many Christians you will see are behaving less like the disciples in Acts 4 and more like the Sanhedrin. You see, central to the Sanhedrin's ethos was that they denied the resurrection. It was part of who they were. And if this message started to gain traction, they were finished as a religious and political power. It didn't matter if it was true or not. They couldn't afford the risk of letting the disciples preach it. 
Then there were the priests. We know from John's gospel that Jesus had appeared before both Anna and Caiaphas. So if Jesus was now actually alive and was who he said he was, then Annas and Caiaphas and the priests were finished as any sort of moral or religious authority. We also know from elsewhere in Acts that one of the accusations against the disciples, like Stephen, was that they spoke against the temple. So if indeed God could be found on the ground outside the temple, the temple guards and that whole constituency were finished as a cohort of civic influence or power. And that is why this unholy alliance were trying in verse 17 to stop this message from spreading. The message of joy, of healing, of resurrection, of hope. They were wanting to stop it spreading. Why? They were wanting to punish these guys. Why? Because they cared more for their own power and agenda than they did for beggars or fishermen or the joy-filled residents of the city they were meant to be leading. Vested theological interests, vested political interests, the gospel crashes through them all. Jesus, you see, refuses to be adopted into any cause, be it American nationalism, Ulster loyalism, progressive democratic liberalism. Jesus will not have it. He will not be tamed he will not be silenced. And if we let those things, any of them, define us more than our obedience to Christ, we're in the camp of the Sanhedrin, trying to stop the seditious apostolic gospel of hope from spreading. And Jesus will say to us, you cannot do it. You cannot serve both me and these other things. Because, you see, when God is on the ground, we can follow nobody else. Neutrality becomes a non-option. Verse 12 has become a little bit of a Christian mantra, maybe even a cliche. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's a sticking point for anyone who likes to have a pluralistic outlook. It's exclusivist in a culture that wants to be inclusive. It's judgmental in a culture that eschews judgmentalism. It appears arrogant in a culture that despises arrogance. Much more attractive is the famous fable of the blind man and the elephant, where everybody has a bit of the truth, but nobody has the whole truth apart from, of course, the secular pluralist who's telling the story and can see where everybody else is misguided. Now, if we're going to be honest, then surely that's where the arrogance lies. But there's no avoiding it. From the beginning, the message of those who were dubbed Christians, followers of the way, disciples of Jesus, their message has been that there is no other name, no other salvation. If there had been, then the whole life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus would have been pointless and unnecessary, a tragic failure if there had been any other way, any other name. If even the God-given law to Israel, his people, was insufficient for salvation, then how can worship be given to any other God, any other idol or ideology? In verse 19, Peter and John make it clear. Who should we listen to? 
they asked the representatives of God whether they should listen to God or to them. You see, they were bound to follow this man who gave his life for them, who forgave them their failures, who empowered them to go into all the world with this transformative message. In the next chapter, they stated boldly, we have to obey God, not men. When Jesus was raised from the dead, neutrality became a non-option. He is Lord or something else will be. You may mean well, you may be sincere, you may find comfort in Krishna or in crystals, you may devote yourself to family life or feng shui, you may believe in karma or the Quran, you may put your ultimate hope in economic growth or ecological change, but if Christ is not Lord, then you have a false and ultimately foundationless salvation. When you read Peter's sermons from Acts 2 to 5, you will be struck at his directness. He's not subtle. Regularly, he says to the Jewish leaders, you crucified him. You brought this upon yourself. Why would Peter risk a beating? Why would he risk prison? Because of the truth of verse 12 and the conviction of verse 19, there is no other hope. And then in verses 24 to 30, we read of the aftermath of the trial, and we see that when God is on the ground, we keep in touch with Him. The apostles were at the cutting edge of this epoch-defining moment, the birth of the Christian church. But it wasn't all brave speeches from the dock, spectacular healings, and multiple conversions. All of that was only possible because they had a quiet, ongoing, dynamic relationship with God. And we can see this from their prayers. And what I find fascinating about the prayer in this chapter is this. I don't know about you, but if I had just had the experience of being on trial for my faith, and I'd been told upon fear of further punishment not to speak of Jesus again, I would probably have retired to my home hurt and a little depressed, I may have prayed something like this. God, what are you doing? You gave us your spirit. We obediently proclaimed your word. We'd only just got started on this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth bit. And here in Jerusalem, nothing has changed. The people who killed you are threatening us. They're silencing us, God. What are we to do? Do you not care? God, are you even watching? But no, I would have been thinking about me. The apostles, on the other hand, instead of reminding God about their circumstances and their situation, they reminded themselves of God's acts of faithfulness. Their prayer was a statement of faith. They recited the wonders of God, recognizing that what was happening to them was totally in line with God's purposes through history and what Jesus had promised. The nations and the peoples will rise up, Psalm 2, in vain. They will conspire, but in vain. So how do they conclude their prayer? By wanting fire to fall from heaven and consume their enemies? No, the old John would have prayed for that. The pre-resurrection John would have prayed for that. You can read all about it in Luke chapter 9, asking fire to consume the Samaritans. 
But now instead, the new John and the others pray that God's hand would be stretched out to bless, to heal, to perform signs and wonders. And most challenging of all, they prayed that regardless of the threats that they had just faced, they prayed that they'd be enabled to respond, verse 29, by preaching even more boldly. And immediately, immediately in verse 31, this was fulfilled. Because finally we see that when God is on the ground, we can't keep it to ourselves. Verse 20 and 31. Luke records for us this great phrase of verse 20. We can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And we see the evidence of this, don't we, in verse 31. If you were in this situation, hauled up in front of the authorities, got a ticking off, if people said you were lucky to escape persecution, what would you do? I'd have kept my head down. I'd look at more covert ways to talk about Jesus. Nothing too public, nothing to arouse further suspicion or attract attention. But no, we read that they prayed for courage to speak the Word of God with greater boldness. And it happened. The supernatural, supernatural phenomena of the shaking room wasn't a self-indulgent spiritual high but a means by which they were filled with that courage. It was the spiritual equivalent of the protesters being cleared from Tiananmen Square in 1989 and one guy in defiance standing in front of the tanks. It's the spiritual equivalent of Rosa Parks in 1955 defiantly refusing to vacate her seat in a segregated bus in favor of a white person in Montgomery, Alabama. It's the spiritual equivalent of an Afghan schoolgirl told to stay at home but defiantly walking to school. It's what Christians do. Obey God rather than human authorities. It's what we do. We follow nobody else. And if they tell us to remain silent and not to say that or to stop meeting together or to let everything stay private, to keep it all to ourselves, this transforming, powerful, life-changing good news of the resurrection, we say, sorry, no can do. We bow before a higher throne. We follow a different master. And the more you tell us to keep quiet, the more boldly we will proclaim it. Because you see, we are inheritors of the legacy of these apostles who demonstrated that now that God was on the ground, you cannot, you dare not keep it to yourself. Now, if you're watching on live stream, the prayers are going to follow in around two or three minutes. Thank you so much, Monty. We've reached the point in our service where we'll take some time to pray for others. Um, I think it's only appropriate that we would spend a few moments praying for Katya and Dina and their friends as they continue the work of the Lord um, in, in the place that they're at. 
We'd also like to spend some time today in prayer for church organizations that are beginning to meet again um, cautiously, and especially for Globe Cafe, which will start meeting on Monday uh, for the first time in a very long time. We'll be thinking about and praying for some of the unsettled places in our world at the moment. And finally, we'll keep praying for our congregation and its leaders, excuse, excuse me, as we move through the process of filling our vacancy. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your work in the world. Lord, um, we thank you for people like taking careful steps towards restarting. Thank you for the opportunities that we have now to meet in person and to reestablish connections with people and um, relationships, both within our church family and in the wider community. Father, we pray especially for Globe Cafe as it starts back up again tomorrow evening. We pray for Jenny and Martin and the rest of the team as they prepare to welcome people from many different countries tomorrow. We pray for all those who will come along to Globe, that they'll find genuine friendship and community, that they'll encounter people who are sincerely interested um, in, in them and in their lives and who will be a living embodiment of Christ's love for them. We know that being far from home can be lonely and challenging at times, and we pray that as these folks rub shoulders with Christian believers, that they would begin to understand something of how long and wide and high and deep your love for them is. Father, we also pray this morning for the people of Haiti, many of whom are also displaced from their homes, who are afraid and injured and helpless after yet another natural disaster in that country. We pray that relief would find its way to those who need it most and that your people on the ground in Haiti would be among the first to respond with physical help and eternal hope. Remind us who are far, far away from that suffering to pray and to give and to remember those whom Jesus loves there. Father, we also commit to your hands the leaders and the staff of our church and ourselves as a congregation as we work together through the process of filling our vacancy. Lord, we ask that you would guide and direct all parties involved, that we would be seeking your will and trusting you, the shepherd of your people, to meet all of our needs. Thank you for the ways that you are working on the ground in the world, Lord, and thank you for allowing us to participate with you as you build your kingdom. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray these things. Amen. Gareth is going to come and make some announcements now. Good morning, folks. Um, I have a few announcements, so please bear with me. Um, One of the things is it's an absolute joy to see some of our organizations restarting. Um, Sometimes with that flurry of announcements that we're trying to get into the email, we occasionally miss a couple. So apologies if you're in those organizations and we'll do our best to fix that. Um, One of the things is that Anchor Boys are due to be starting in the church hall on Monday week. So that's Monday the 4th of October. And if the joy for P1s to P3 boys is going to be anything like the joy in our household when our boys could be going to junior section, um, that's something really to be looking forward to. So Anger Boys is starting on Monday the 4th, and that's for P1 to P3. If you have a boy in P4 to P7, juniors is already underway. But if you want to know any more information about that, don't hesitate to chat to the church office and you can sign up on Church Suite for any of those things. GB will be starting very shortly, and no doubt we'll be chatting to you about that very soon. 
other organizations, as Jenny highlighted, was Globe. What, one of the big things about COVID is that it ruins relationships, doesn't it? It ruins an opportunity to, to get in touch with folks. And we're delighted to see Globe restarting this week. And also we're delighted to see the Friendship Club restarting later on this week. Opportunities for people from around the world to connect or from people um, in our local parish to connect with each other. Last week, it was great to see Sunday Club restarting at our second service, the joy of people running back in um, at the second half of the service. One of the challenges is Crash, trying to get Crash up and running, and we will, we are working really hard to work out where we can fit Crash into our buildings and get a, a meaningful Crash restarted. But I just wanted to let you know that during the 10 a.m. service, the service is being live streamed in the Whitley Hall. Can I assure you, please be assured that we're not in the least bit bothered by a bit of noise. We've chatted to our preachers. They would much rather see all ages of the church family worshiping together, and we're absolutely delighted to see the youngest in our church family here. But we also realize that sometimes the parents and carers may need a bit of space to retreat to if the, your baby or your husband becomes unsettled. Um, so please don't hesitate to come along and worship with us, but just be aware that that facility is there. We'd love to see you. Next week, there's a, a bit of um, other stuff going on outside. So the Belfast Marathon happens next Sunday morning. They leave Stormont at 9 a.m., which depends on the pace of leaving Stormont. There could be people still running past here by our, our 10 a.m. service. Um, in the past, it actually hasn't been that much of a deal, okay, in that just be aware that there may be a bit more traffic around for that 10 a.m. service, but actually we've usually had no problem coming here. One other thing, though, is actually next Sunday is our Harvest Stroke Climate Sunday. So it may be one of those opportunities where if you're thinking, actually, I could walk to church and there's going to be a lot of traffic, why not leave the car at home, set off five or ten minutes earlier, and then actually walk to church? Great way to avoid the traffic, but also think about our carbon footprint on our climate Sunday. Also, traditionally at our harvest service, that's an opportunity for us to collect a bit more and think about storehouse. They're, the thing that they want us to bring in September was tinned fish, and October is biscuits. It would be great as a church family if we could think about collecting a bit more for Storehouse next Sunday. The one thing is, there's also an opportunity for thousands of people to be running, stroke walking past our church front door during the marathon. And one of the opportunities is we want our church to be open and encouraging, not least for some of our congregation who will be taking part in the marathon, but actually blessing and encouraging our local community and all of those folks that are running past. We're gonna, some of us are going to be here with the church door open and looking at least as if we're awake and alive at, um, from 8.45 next Sunday morning. If that's something you would like to be part of, please come and chat to me at the end and we'll see exactly how that looks, okay? Finally, generally why I'm up, I'm up here is to give the latest bit of chat from the, the vacancy um, situation. As you will be aware, Session met with some candidates last weekend and Session have agreed and decided to nominate one name for the congregation to vote on as our prospective minister. Unfortunately, at this stage in the process, I'm not able to share that name with you, not least because the East Belfast Presbytery have to meet on Tuesday night. So you and I will have to do this again next week. Um, but in the meantime, can I encourage you to engage with the next bit of the process? 
At various points throughout the church building, in the vestibule and over here, you will see a printed list of eligible voting members of the congregation as per Kirkpatrick's interpretation of the code. I would be grateful if you could check the list and make sure you agree with it. If you think we've included or omitted someone in error, please can you get in touch with me? Um, The lists are displayed for the next couple of weeks and you need to be in touch with me by 8pm on Sunday the 3rd if there's anything that we need to check. And I would also, if you're, you know, there are folks who can't make it to the church service. If you phone the office during the week, we'll be able to check that for you and check we're up to date. It's a lot of process, but can I thank you for your prayers? As I said, I'm going to give you a wee bit more detail of our deliberations next week. But can I say over this season as a session, we've really appreciated your prayers and supports. Decisions of this nature are never easy, but can I thank you for your support and can I encourage you to continue to pray for us as a congregation and for our prospective minister? A lot of that process, the danger with all of those announcements and a lot of that process, it sucks the life out of what Monty was challenging us with earlier. Can I just bring you back to to what we were thinking about, the challenge of where the authority lies. Does authority lie with the state or those earthly rulers, or does the authority lie with God? In a picture of John, when he's looking in Revelation, where we end up is worshiping God before the throne. And no longer the question is, is it worth it? But the answer is that he is worthy. And so for our final hymn, we're going to join with that number that no one can number, that from every tribe and tongue that joins together and raises voices and sings, saying, salvation belongs to our God. Well, we've met with God this morning, and he's equipped us with instruction and encouragement from his word to be about his business in this coming week. So we'll close our service with a benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Have a wonderful week.